sometimes you just got to roll with it and uh, never mind the clock and let people share what God's placed on their hearts, and it's a beautiful thing uh, when it all comes together like that. So thank you so much. Um, but let me just say to all of you, right, if you're out there sitting there thinking, I, I don't want to say that much, you don't have to, <laughs> okay? What I'm looking for is um, just a couple minutes, a brief summary of your story with the Lord, how he's touched and changed your life. And uh, I don't want you to feel um, intimidated by the story that we've just heard. It's a fantastic story, uh, but you don't have to share uh, that degree of depth. Um, I just want to encourage all of you to be thinking and praying and preparing to share some part, some piece of who you are and how God's been at work in your life. And uh, you will have opportunity to practice in our gatherings here together. Amen. Thank you so much. Okay, let's pray uh, as we turn our hearts to God's word this morning. Lord, we welcome you to speak to us. You've already begun, Lord, through that story. Wow, so many lessons, so many insights, so many beautiful um, illustrations of your love for us and how it changes our lives. We thank you for that. And Lord, we pray now uh, as we turn to your word and we study it together, Lord, that you would teach us what we need to know, what we need to learn this morning so that we can go deeper with you. We welcome you, Lord. Let the anointing of your spirit rest upon the reading and the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to read together from uh, Luke chapter 5. <clears throat> We've been for the last four or five weeks in uh, 2 Corinthians. And uh, this is a continuation of the same series of messages. So the same overall theme, turning faith inside out. But our focus is a little different this morning uh, through some things that happened earlier this week and even back during our time of prayer and fasting. Uh, I feel that the Lord's been really uh, speaking to me through this particular story that I want to share with you this morning, and it's found in Luke chapter 5. So if you would um, stand with me, let's read together uh, from the Gospel of Luke, these first 11 verses. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish 
that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 5. You may be seated. So we're switching gears just a little bit. We're still focused on the same theme of turning faith inside out, but I've honestly uh, felt led by the Spirit of the Lord to focus your attention on this particular story from Luke chapter 5, where we find Jesus calling his first disciples not, not only to follow him in general, but specifically to become fishers of men or fishers of people. Maybe you remember the little kids' song. Uh, I don't know. Does anybody else remember this besides me? Right? Sing it with me now. Come on. I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. Okay, that's good. Thanks. That makes me feel better. Um, Just a fun little side note there. We've all learned about this story. We all know this story. And we all know that being a quote-unquote, fisher of men, is part of the purpose and the focus and the mission of following Jesus, right? So we can look at this story in Luke chapter 5 as a historic narrative about the life of Jesus and his relationship with his first disciples. That's the easy way to look at this. We can look at it and learn from it some important insights about how Jesus instructed and interacted with his first disciples. But here's what's more important than that, the historic part of this narrative account. I believe, friends, that this story is a prophetic picture of what God wants to do with us. Wrap your head around that. I want to invite you to look at this story with the eyes of faith and ask yourself the question, what if our nets went from empty to full? What if our boat started to sink because it was so full of fish? What if this story in Luke 5 is meant to become our story? What if, my friends, God God intends to move his church, and this church in particular, from a season of empty nets to a season of full nets? What if we are indeed, as many people are suggesting, 
on the brink of America's third great awakening. Let me share an illustration with you. I just came across an article, and this is one in a series that I've come across over the last few months about the possibility that our nation is on the brink of a third great awakening. This story is from Charisma magazine, and the title is Revivals Across the South Could Point to the Third Great Awakening. This is not the kind of thing you're going to find on the front page of the New York Times or Time magazine. This is not the kind of thing you're going to read about or hear about, you know, on CNN. Um, but this is, this, is a, this is a picture, this is a glimpse of how the Spirit of God is moving that's important for us to grasp and, and grab hold of. So I'm not going to read the whole article because it's rather long and there are lots of examples and illustrations. What I will do is I'll, I'll post it to our Facebook page and uh, try to find a way maybe to put it up on the website and certainly we can even send it as an attachment with our next weekly update email um, if you're receiving those. Um, so if you want to read the whole article and all the illustrations that are highlighted there, um, I commend it to you. It's really, really fascinating. But here's the introduction to the article. North America <clears throat> has hosted many great revivals over the last few centuries. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield led the first great awakening in the colonial United States in the 1730s and 1740s. In the early 1800s, the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky kicked off the Second Great Awakening. People came from around the world to witness the Holy Spirit's power at Azusa Street and the revival of 1906. And in the 1990s, thousands flocked to the Toronto Blessing and the Brownsville Revival. Now, mere miles from the site of the original Cane Ridge Revival, seeds are being planted for the next great move of God, and maybe even a third great awakening. Earlier this year, traveling evangelist Rick Curry visited Mount Carmel Christian Church in Paris, Kentucky. The church was founded in 1818 by a man denounced by his former church for attending the original Cane Ridge Revival. Curry was invited to preach at Mount Carmel's 200th anniversary celebration, which happened to fall on Pentecost Sunday. During his message, revival broke out and it has not subsided since. Who knew? But this Kentucky city isn't the only one experiencing revival. In fact, it's just one example of an insatiable hunger for God's presence that's breaking out in cities and towns across America. At New Life Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, Pastor Mike Failauer says an incredible move of God has taken place since he and his staff decided to get out of God's way and give the Holy Spirit room to work. Since June, New Life has seen more than 300 baptisms, numerous salvations, and physical and emotional healings and deliverance. Christ Fellowship Church in Dawsonville, Georgia, has experienced revival since February under lead pastor Todd Smith. This church of 350 people has witnessed more than 865 baptisms. That's in six months. Smith says people have traveled hundreds, even thousands of miles, just to walk into the baptismal waters and feel the presence of the Lord. 
As a result, many have been miraculously healed and delivered from addictions and emotional scars. Even the U.S. military base at Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri is feeling the Spirit's fire. The Baptist Press reports that chaplains have seen an incredible hunger for God with nearly 2,000 soldiers giving their lives to Christ since March of 2018. In Greenville, Tennessee, a tent revival led by evangelist D.R. Harrison has lasted over five months and led to hundreds of salvations. Paul Schatzlein, an Assemblies of God minister and traveling evangelist who studied revivals and written books on the need for spiritual renewal, says that these revivals show that the church is on the cusp of breakthrough. It is the embryonic stages of the third great awakening, Schatzlein says. I believe that with all my heart. From there, as I've indicated, the article goes on to detail some of these specific examples and share testimonies of people that have been healed or saved in these various locations that are mentioned. So again, if you're interested in reading more, uh, I encourage you to follow up and find that article. We'll post it up on our Facebook page. Friends, I tell you this story because that's what full nets look like. That's what Luke 5 looks like in our day and age. And this is where I believe the Spirit of God is taking us over the course of this year. So I want to encourage you to keep praying for the goal that we set a year ago of seeing two dozen baptisms. We needed an extension on that assignment, and the Lord is a gracious teacher And he's offered us an extension. But I'm not going to stop praying and pressing in on that goal. And quite honestly, I'm hopeful that two dozen is way too small a number. In the meantime, here's the question. What do we need to be thinking about right now to ready the nets? I mean, if this is really where God wants to take us, if this is really what God wants to do in our land, if God is fixing to pour out his spirit and bring about a third great awakening in this nation, are we ready for that? I believe there are some clues in this story from Luke chapter 5 and also another one, a very similar story found in John 21. We'll look at that one as well over the weeks to come. So, so here's my suggestion. We need to roll up our sleeves and we need to learn and prepare on the basis of these stories and what we can glean from Peter's example. And the place to begin, I'm convinced, is with a fresh recognition and understanding of the process that Peter went through with Jesus to experience the reality of overflowing nets. So here's here's where it starts. We have to recognize that most of us, perhaps all of us, I don't want to be presumptuous, but certainly most of us can relate to the feelings of disappointment and discouragement 
the disappointment and discouragement of Peter's long night. Notice that that's where the story begins. It begins with empty nets. It begins with weariness. It begins with frustration. It begins with discouragement. It begins with Peter basically saying to Jesus, come on, really? Really? You want me to throw the nets out again? This is a waste of time. I'm tired. I want to go home. I want to eat breakfast and go to sleep. Listen again to the request that Jesus made and the first part of Peter's response. Luke 5, 4 and 5. When he'd finished speaking to the crowds, right? So get this scene in your mind. Activate your imagination, right? These guys are on the shore. They're cleaning their nets. It's been a long night. They've come up empty. They're frustrated. They're tired. They're hungry. Jesus comes along, hops in Peter's boat, commandeers the boat, basically, and says, I'm going to borrow your boat for a little while. Let's, you know, put, put me out here so that I can talk to the crowds of people that are following me. And so Peter agrees. They put out, and, you know, there's a reason behind all this, right? Jesus is on the boat because he didn't have a sound system. And so when you, if you, maybe you've noticed that when you get out on the water and you speak, your sound, the sound of your voice is amplified so that people can hear you better. The suggestion, the implication is that there are a lot of people following Jesus already. A lot of people eager to hear what he has to say. And he's trying to figure out a way to communicate most effectively with them. So he's got this brilliant idea. Peter, let me borrow your boat. Let me go out on the water here so that I can speak to all these people and teach them about the kingdom of God. And that way they'll be able to hear me more effectively. That's where the story begins. Peter puts up with it. Peter, Peter's like, well, okay, wow. Yeah, I'm kind of tired. I'd like to go home right now. But for you, okay, this looks like a good situation. I'm in. But then Jesus finishes teaching. I don't know where the crowds went. We're not told all the details here. But what's compelling about this is, is what we are told regarding the personal interaction between Jesus and Peter. Look closely at these words. Luke 5, 4 and 5, when he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Jesus wants to go fishing. And here's Peter's response. This is priceless. I, I probably can't do it justice. I probably can't. I mean, I'm, people have said that I'm a, a, an okay actor I'm trying here to capture the right tone of voice, but I don't know that I can do it justice. Imagine how Peter would have said these words. Imagine the exhaustion and the exasperation in his voice. Master, we've worked hard all night long and we haven't caught anything. Do you feel it? Do you feel the frustration in those words? Do you feel the disappointment and the discouragement in those words? 
Can you allow yourself to get in touch with the emotion behind and beneath what Peter is saying? Now, this, this is not just some, you know, crazy fishing story exaggerated for extra effect. Fishing stories have, you know, a way of, you know, like, right, you, you all know, that, you know, the, <laughs> the reputation of fishing stories, right? People are prone to exaggerate. I think there's a saying that um, the best way for a, for a fish to grow larger is to almost be caught. This is true. This is a true story. And if you let your thoughts wander down the, uh, the path to the punchline in verse 10, you realize that this story is, is really an illustration of what Jesus intends to do with his disciples. Right? Why did this happen? It wasn't that just, you know, Jesus just randomly decided that he wanted fish to eat that day. So, hey, let's go fishing and, you know, get ourselves some lunch. No, there's a, there's a meaning and a purpose behind this whole experience. What is it? Jesus is trying to illustrate something to his future disciples. Four of them, in fact, right? You know the four. They worked together. They had this family fishing business. They were best buddies. They went out and did this every night, and I'm sure they fished at night because usually the fish bite better when it's dark and cool. Third shift job, rough way to make a living, but it's what they did. Peter and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John, the sons of Zebedee. They were to become four of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And this is where their journey began. Jesus is illustrating to them what he wants to do with their lives as his followers. The whole thing, the whole encounter with moving from empty nets to full nets is a picture, it's a prophetic illustration of the punchline that Jesus gives at the end of the story. Verse 10, follow me and I'm going to teach you now how to become fishers of men or fishers of people, if you want to say it more inclusively. So here's, here's question number one. When it comes to being fishers of men, how do you feel about throwing out the nets another time? Are you weary? Are you discouraged? Are you frustrated? Are you ready to go home and give up? That's how Peter felt. That's where the story begins. And you know, I'm not sure what, Jesus underst- what Peter understood to be true about Jesus yet in that, in that moment. But this isn't all about what's up here in the head. He may have already had some basic understanding that Jesus was different, unique, powerful. I'm sure that the reputation of Jesus had preceded him and that Peter had heard things, maybe even seen things before this encounter. But what this story is really driving at is the battle with discouragement 
that Peter faced. This is a battle that all of us face when it comes to following Jesus in general and becoming fishers of men in particular. Hello? I mean, is this true for you? I know it's true for me. At the level of the heart, disappointment and discouragement are huge hurdles for us to overcome. Because if we're not careful, this is how it works, right? Disappointment and discouragement can settle in and create a mindset of fear. They can immobilize us. Those feelings can begin to shade our thinking and our actions. So instead of staying at it, we might begin to think of giving up. We might begin to disconnect from the mission that Jesus has invited us into. Think about this from Peter's vantage point, and then allow yourself to get in touch with your own heartfelt feelings about sharing your faith. To use what I think is an ironic and appropriate figure of speech, I think we're all literally in the same boat with Peter. We're all battling disappointment and frustration when it comes to the work of being witnesses for Jesus. Try to picture this scene in your imagination and, and it doesn't take long to get in touch with those feelings. And what I'm saying is that's okay. It's okay to have those feelings. It's okay to confront those feelings We need to recognize that that's where we are in the process. That's where we are in the story. The boats, something like the one, you know, pictured on the screen behind me in the the illustrations I'm using this morning, are representative of our lives. And these guys, Peter and Andrew, James and John, are are seated there washing their nets, minding their own business, ready to go home, ready to call it quits, at least for that day. I don't know, I'm, I'm imagining they were probably so discouraged that they were wondering whether they should go out again the next night. Have you felt that way? Let the full emotional impact of Peter's words settle in on you and find the place in your own life where you can be in touch with your own feelings of discouragement. Here are a couple interesting little insights about fishing that I think are relevant to the story and our takeaway from the story. Did you know that the average fisherman takes an Uh, somewhere between 50 and 100 casts for every one fish that they catch. Now, there's uh, lots of debate about this, what, what what a good catch rate is and what a poor catch rate is. I found one poor guy in an online chat that estimated that his own catch rate was 288 to 1. And he was catching major grief from all the other fishermen reading his post. It was actually quite hilarious to read this. Made me think that maybe he should give up fishing for comedy instead. 
Speaking of comedy, here's a little comic. Good old Calvin and Hobbes. Fishing is the most boring sport in the world. We've been sitting here for 20 minutes and not one thing has happened. Can you see the frustration on his face? Wow! Hey, now it's exciting, isn't it? Why do I tell you this, right? I'm trying to drill down into the emotions of a professional fisherman getting skunked. That's the storyline here. It's one thing for somebody like me to get skunked. I'm not a very good fisherman. You know, some people make this a hobby, and they're pretty good at it. Deej, if he was here, I would pick on him right now. He's a pretty good fisherman. It's a bona fide hobby for him, and he's devoted himself to the craft of learning how to fish fruitfully. He catches a lot more fish than I ever will. But Deej is not a professional. For him, it's just a hobby. Maybe some of you have heard of a really cool Christian man born near Kalamazoo, Michigan, who is by many people recognized to be the world's greatest fisherman. Do you know what his name is? He goes by his initials, KVD, which stands for Kevin Van Dam. He's won the Angler of the Year Award seven times, and he's been fishing professionally since 1990 when he started at the age of 23, his professional career. And over the course of almost 30 years as a professional fisherman, he's won over $6 million in earnings. That's why he's commonly recognized as one of the best fishermen in the world. So imagine KVD fishing all day or all night, as the case might be, and coming home empty-handed. That's a little closer to the idea that Luke is driving at with this story. Peter was a professional at this. This was his livelihood. This is what he did every night to earn a living and provide for his family. Generally, when you're really good at something and then you go out and you do it really poorly, the natural result is an abundance of disappointment and discouragement. You're like, what in the world? I'm better at this than than that. What's going on? Now, I don't think we have any professional fishermen here, so imagine your own job. Just take this and parallel it into your own life experience. Imagine having a really terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day at the office. Some of you have seen the movie, so you know where that phrase comes from. A day like Peter's bad day at the office. Imagine that in your world, right? Here's an example, though I can't verify that it's actually a true story and not an urban legend, but even if it's not true, it's, it's a good one. This is the story of Brian, a commercial saturation diver for global divers out of Louisiana. And uh, his job is to perform underwater repairs on offshore drilling rigs. Here's an email that he sent to his sister, and she submitted it uh, for a contest and supposedly won the contest. 
Uh, so anytime you have a bad day at the office, remember this. The email reads, Hi, Sue. Just another note from your bottom-dwelling brother. Last week, I had a really bad day at the office. I know you've been feeling down lately at work, so I thought I would share my dilemma with you to make you realize that it's really not so bad after all. Before I can tell you what happened to me, I first must bore you with a few technicalities of my job. This time of year, the water is quite cool, even with a wetsuit. So what we do to keep warm is this. We have a diesel-powered industrial water heater. This $20,000 piece of machinery sucks the water out of the sea, heats it to a delightful temperature, and then pumps it down to the diver through a garden hose, which is taped to the air hose. Now, this sounds like a good plan, and I've used it several times with no complaints. What I do when I get to the bottom and start working is I take the hose and I stuff it down the back of my neck, and this floods my whole suit with warm water. It's like working in a jacuzzi. Everything was going well until all of a sudden, my rear end started to itch. So, of course, I scratched, and this only made things worse. Within a few seconds, my bottom started to burn. I pulled the hose out from my back, but the damage was done. In agony, I realized what had happened. The hot water machine had sucked up a jellyfish and pumped it into my suit. This is even worse than the poison ivy that you once had under a cast. Now I had that hose down my back. I don't have any hair on my back so the jellyfish couldn't get stuck to my back. My bottom was not as fortunate. When I scratched what I thought was an itch, I was actually grinding the jellyfish into my bottom. I informed the dive supervisor of my dilemma over the communicator. His instructions were unclear due to the fact that he, along with five other divers, were laughing hysterically. (laughs) Needless to say, I aborted the dive... It totaled 35 minutes before I could come to the surface for my chamber dry decompression. I got to the surface wearing nothing but my brass helmet. My suit and gear were tied to the bell. When I got on board, the medic, with tears of laughter running down his face, handed me a tube of cream and told me to shove it. The cream put the fire out, but I couldn't go to the bathroom for two days because my bum was swollen shut. Anyway, the next time you have a bad day at the office, think of me. (laughs) Think about how much worse your day would have been if you had shoved a jellyfish up your own bottom. (laughs) I hope that you have no bad days at the office, but if you do, I hope that this will make it more tolerable. (laughs) So that's a really bad day at the office. Now, in our family, we're not allowed to say the word B-U-T-T, so I've cleaned the story up a little bit for your blessing and benefit this morning. If it was still a little edgy, sorry about that. I hope, hope you can find some humor in it. But friends, this is, the, this is the epitome of embarrassment and frustration, right? And as bad as Peter's day was, I don't think it was perhaps quite that bad, But the feelings of frustration were still the same, maybe just to a slightly lesser intense degree. Listen, 
even if you believe that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, and even if you believe that sharing your faith with others is an important part of following Jesus, what I want you to recognize here is that disappointment and discouragement can still set in at the heart level. This is not so much about what you believe up here, it's about what you're feeling down here. Regarding this fishers of men business that Jesus has called you into. What Peter's example does for us is it encourages us to recognize those feelings and their effects on us. And Honestly, I I think the result of disappointment and frustration is that many Christians have simply given up trying. Why should I bother? Why should I bother to talk about my faith with other people if I'm going to keep coming up with empty nets? It's not worth it. Or we might say, well, I just don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'm going to let somebody else worry about that. How about you? Does it bother you? Does it bother you when you look around church and don't see anyone new? Any visitors? Does it bother you when you stop to think about your own life and you can't remember the last time that you shared your faith with a non-Christian? Honestly, I'm hoping and trusting that I'm not alone in feeling this way, but this is how I feel. I feel the frustration of coming up empty. The empty net syndrome affects all of us. I suspect that there are a good number of us who really want to see the gospel make an impact on other people's lives. And we are rightly motivated by genuine compassion and love for other people. The trouble is... Some of us have been fishing for a long time and we just haven't caught very much. Even catching a jellyfish by accident is one fish better than catching nothing. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Here's what I want you to learn from Peter's example. and Let me just wind this down here with uh, one very practical insight. If you're in touch with those feelings, if you can identify and relate to how Peter must have felt in that moment, what did he do? Well, there's a couple of things he did, and we're not going to have time to, deal, to get to all of them this morning, so we're going to come back to this story and continue to press in on it next week. But I want you to start with me here by recognizing the first thing he did, the first thing. And this is not really complicated. It's actually rather simple and plain. In fact, so much so that you might take it for granted and read right by it. Here's the the point, the takeaway. To ready our nets again, we need to admit that our own efforts are ineffective without Jesus. We have to admit it. We have to confess it. We have to be willing to say, Lord Jesus, I don't really want to do this anymore. This is how I feel. We have to recognize how we feel and then articulate it. Get it out. 
Say it to the Lord. Admit it. And, you know, honestly, this is broader. This principle is broader than just becoming fishers of men. There are lots of applications here. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. We don't have a lot of time left. But I do feel compelled to mention that this principle of discouragement can apply to many other areas of our lives besides sharing our faith. Maybe you're a parent who's reached the end of their rope with an unruly child. Maybe you're an addict of something other than Jesus, but try as you might, you just can't seem to kick that habit. Maybe you've wanted to have a quiet time for years, but you just can't carve out the time and make yourself get out of bed any earlier. Maybe you realize in this moment that you haven't been a great spouse and the icy relationship with your husband or wife only seems to be getting worse. The disappointment and frustration of those empty nets can set in in a multitude of ways to lots of areas of our lives. But what I'm saying here is that once we recognize those feelings and we confront them, we can bring them to the Lord. Disappointment, frustration, and discouragement are real enemies. They will suck the life out of you. And the enemy of your soul will shamelessly seek to use them against you in every way that he can. That's called spiritual warfare. What I'm telling you is that there's only one way to prevent that from happening. Do you know what it is? It's to speak those feelings to Jesus and let go of them. Invite him to override them. That's what Peter did in his own moment of weakness and frustration. He admitted he had nothing left. He admitted that he was weary and discouraged. He admitted it to Jesus, and then he allowed Jesus to overcome those feelings. In that moment of weariness where disappointment and discouragement are eating your lunch, what are you to do? Well, don't give up. Don't give in to those feelings. Start by confessing them, admitting them. That's the simplicity of what Peter did first. All he did, to put it as simply as I can, is he confessed his feelings to Jesus. He just said, Lord, I'm tired. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm frustrated, Lord. I don't really feel like doing this. Now, of course, he said more than that. And we'll talk about that next Sunday. And he did more than that. He didn't give up. He followed Jesus to the place of full nets. And so we'll talk next Sunday about how verse 5 ends. But for now, I just want you to sit in how it begins. Reflect on it. Identify with it. Peter had to admit that he didn't really want to cast the nets again. He had to admit that he'd come to the end of himself. 
And when you come to the end of yourself and you freely admit it, only then can Jesus do for you what only Jesus can do for you. He can turn your empty nets into full nets in a heartbeat. He can turn your despair into dancing. He can turn your fruitless efforts into fruitful efforts. But those miracles only come when we admit our need for him. The miracle only comes when we admit that without him to guide us, the nets are probably going to stay empty. So this story is about breaking out, breaking the patterns of self-reliance and self-pity. There's like a cycle here. We try to do things ourselves, and then we get frustrated because it doesn't work. We try to do things ourselves, and then we get frustrated because it doesn't work and bear fruit. Self-reliance often leads to self-pity and frustration. This is how I sometimes feel, if I can be really honest with you, about pastoral ministry. When nobody new is wandering in the doors of our church and coming to faith. We're meant for more than this. I long for the day when we see a steady stream of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Are you with me? I feel disappointed sometimes, discouraged and frustrated because we don't seem to be bearing the fruit of changed lives that is so central to the mission of Jesus. Let me close with these words from John 15. It's switching analogies, but it's all related. This is about abiding in him. Listen to what Jesus said, again, to his disciples. Some of his last words spoken within a few days of his death. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So what's it going to be? Empty nets? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm ready to be done with empty nets. And the only way we're going to see those nets filled is by inviting the Lord Jesus to do what only he can do. Let's pray.